Thank you, Justin. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you, and we want to assure you that we are praying for you. You know that because we pray for you daily. We love you and we miss you. You know that because we remind you of that. But we, we especially want you to know that uh, we're praying for you. I know there are challenges as the school year opens, and you're in our prayers for that every day. Your children are our future so we pray for them with great diligence. Let's uh, join together wherever you are, at home, uh, on the road somewhere. If you're here, let's join Seth and Lena and Jackson in praying the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I was struck really powerfully back when all of this began, by a statement Mike Bickle made. Uh, he, he doesn't have any scientific proof for it or for his statistic, neither does he need to have it. But he made something that I agree with wholeheartedly, whether his numbers might be off a little bit or not. He said that he doubts even the most sincere disciple of Jesus, the most intentional seeker of God is ever aware of more than maybe 5% of what God is doing for us at any given moment. In other words, he was saying in times when it appears that things aren't happening, he says, understand that we see only the smallest sliver of what God is doing. And we can rest assured that he's always doing more than we think. And can I say this? He's always doing it better than we think. And um, I, I agreed with that. And it, it made me go back in my mind to um, one of the first funerals that I had a, a hand in. It was the funeral of a young man. We'll, we'll call him John. That wasn't his name. But he was, this was our first year in school and um, in, at uh, Southeastern, second year rather. And um, he was loved by everybody as far as I know, just a great guy. And um, he had been in a fight with cancer for most of his high school years and had come to college trusting God to heal him and send him forth into a ministry he felt that he had. And he died. He died. Uh, John died. So um, at the funeral, I, I was... I was shocked to hear one of the leaders of his home church walk up to the coffin, look at this very promising life that had been taken too soon. And I heard this man who was considered the leader of the church, the leader among leaders, wasn't the pastor, but the leader among leaders. He said, well, I just want y'all to know I'll never waste my time asking God for anything again. I was shocked to hear that because he was a leader. Since then, I've learned that we often say things that are not smart when we hurt enough. 
Uh, we, we, we hope that we walk like Job did, where the scripture says in all of his trouble, in all of his provocation, he did not sin or charge God foolishly. That's our goal. But I know that even the most stalwart people of faith say things they wish they hadn't said uh, a little bit later. I, I was probably pastoring probably in my, in the teens of years I had been pastoring when I had another shock similar to that. We had a guest speaker who said, I just feel by the ministry of the Holy Spirit that there are a number of people here today and you're contemplating suicide. He said, not a lot, but two or three. And I know I haven't preached about suicide, but I, I feel that this is a struggle that you have and God wants to set you free. And there were three people that raised their hand for prayer. One, I didn't know. Another person raised their hand. I thought it, it was understandable with them, their psyche, their makeup and so forth. But one of my primary leaders in the church lifted a hand. And it puzzled me because in my mind, in my mind, this is a leader in the church and leaders don't have these kinds of battles. And um, you say, well, pastor, that's silly. I know I was very idealistic. Um, I was raised in a culture that if you had enough faith, nothing would ever touch you or you'd never have any difficulties. And I found out that that's not only not true, it's, it's not even realistic. And um, we, praise God, got help for that person and, and they're doing well today as far as I know. But I'm telling you this, Walking with Jesus is not a rose garden unless you take into account the thorns on the roses. Now, don't get me wrong. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. I, don't get me wrong, even though a lot of theologians don't like you saying this, if heaven was never promised, this life with Jesus is worth living. I'm not complaining. I'm simply saying that there are bumps along the road that the most devout Christians need to deal with. And that's why I want to talk to you today about the nature of unanswered prayer. I'm getting a lot of questions during the last four or five months, not rebellion, not hostility, not belligerence toward God, but I'm having a lot of people say, pastor, this has just been the toughest time of my life and I'm not sure why some of my prayers are not being answered. I've never had to deal with this before. So I want to talk today with you about some reasons for prayer, but I don't want to just give you a reason. My wife used to have a shirt that I called her reason shirt. She had three preschoolers and one elementary school kid at home and she wore a t-shirt that she'd only wear it around the house. Well, she had two. One said mom's t-shirt and then it had a dotted line. It said, please wipe your nose below the line, you know, for the kids. But the other one she had said, because I'm the mommy, that's why. We could, we could deal with every question of unanswered prayer by just saying, well, he's God, that's why. But there are some reasons for unanswered prayer, but there's also... Um, a, a, a spiritual dynamic behind unanswered prayer that we need to look at. Now, I want to read two passages of Scripture because I want you to understand 
that answered prayer is the norm for the Old Testament and the New Testament. It just, we just kind of picked out of a number of verses. First Chronicles 5.20, they cried out to God during the battle and he answered their prayer because they trusted him. Justin, could I trouble you for my water? They, he answered their prayer because they trusted him. In the Old Testament, when the people of God trusted God, it was natural for God to answer their prayer. Matthew 7, 7, New Testament, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. The natural course of things is answered prayer. John would say this in 1 John chapter 5, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that we have what we've requested. And you say, well, pastor, it hasn't worked that way for me. There's a lot of things that I know he heard and I know it's his will, you know, saving my child is God's will. Healing the sick is God's will, but it didn't happen. Well, remember, uh, I, I say this with great regularity. Doctrine is built on all the verses, not a verse or two. Now, don't get me wrong. Something is true, even if it's only mentioned once or twice, but God has given us a book called the Bible, his scriptures. And Whenever we're dealing with difficult questions, we have to take all of the verses that deal with it, not one here and there. You can prove just about anything you want if you're looking for a proof text. But a text out of context is just a pretext. And we have to understand all of the verses. When John said, if he hears us, if we pray according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that we've got it. You have to take that into all in the context of all the other verses about prayer. We look at Jesus, who is the only one we know that ever batted a thousand on, on prayer. Now, and you know, um, there's a, you, you, you might even say that he didn't bat a thousand because he did pray and say, Father, if there's any way this can be done other than my suffering in the garden, let it be nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. So you can make a case for even Jesus was told no on one occasion. But the, the secret to answered prayer with Jesus is this, and I don't have time to go into it today. We've talked about it in the past, but Jesus said, my prayer life and my actions, my ministry is governed by what father says and what he shows me. Jesus taught us that the best prayer on earth begins in heaven. And we, we need to get a word from the Lord to know how to pray in difficult situations. There's some things we always pray for. When he taught us how to pray with the Lord's prayer, he said, every day pray for your food. Every day pray for protection. Every day pray for forgiveness. There are some things that we don't need revelation from heaven to know that we need to pray them. But there are other things that we do need to pray. Now, as I said, we're discussing reasons for answered prayer, but we're going deeper to touch on the nature of it. And, and let me say one thing before we go any further into this. I'm talking about reasons and the nature of unanswered prayer, but it is not for the purpose 
of us leaving here today saying, okay, I'll just live with unanswered prayer. That's not what we're after. In fact, unanswered prayer ought not be the default of our life. Answered prayer ought to be the default of our life. When you go home today and you walk in the house and you flip on the light switch, um, that will, and the light comes on, you won't give it a second thought. You won't even stop and say, praise the king of the universe for the electrical principles that he's given our forefathers that has enabled us to have the roast cooking and to watch television this afternoon and to have the air conditioning going. Praise be to God. No, you, you're so used to power, you just flip on the light. But when the light doesn't come on, it may only be for a half second, you're What's wrong? What's happened? Then a second later, did you pay the bill this month? Well, and then the next second, I wonder if I've blown a fuse. I wonder if the wiring is bad. I wonder if the bulb has blown. In other words, when the light doesn't come on, you don't say, I'll, I knew electricity would let me down. I'll never turn on a switch again you realize something is wrong, so you, you immediately set about fixing it. And we need to be somewhat like that in regard to prayer. Now, um, number two on your outline, the question of answered prayer is one of the core conflicts we have to resolve in our walk with Jesus. Um, every Christian at some point in time or another has wrestled with the dilemma of unanswered prayer, what appears to be unanswered prayer. And we really, we really struggle with it. We really do. There are at least five things that enter into the mix. Um, number one is his will. Um, so much we need to realize that the kingdom operates on his principles and commands, not ours. Um, I, I want to recommend a video to you. Um, you can watch it on YouTube or you can buy the, um, uh, the DVD. It's a, a new uh, series about the life of Jesus. They've just finished season one and that's what you can get. It's called The Chosen. It is fantastic. I love it. It's absolutely fantastic. And uh, it's the story of Jesus in, in serialized form as a, as a, as a TV series. And in one of the episodes, I think it's the last episode of the first season about the woman at the well, they usually begin with a flashback to the Old Testament to kind of set the stage. And, and uh, Jacob is digging a well with his sons. He's in the land of Canaan and a stranger comes up to greet him. And uh, it, it's, it's hilarious. Um, he says... Uh, they introduced himself after a little small talk. He says, we're, we're on a journey uh, doing our best to follow our God. And the friend that he's just met, Jacob's just met, says the gods of Canaan are not kind. And he, Jacob had said, we're, he's promised us a land to my uh, ancestor, Abraham. He said, that's what the gods in Canaan are like. He says, they make promises that take hundreds of years to fulfill they say they're going to bless you in a land that you have to spend a lifetime getting to. The gods of Canaan are not kind. He said, uh, Jacob says, well, um, I don't serve a God of Canaan. I serve El Shaddai. I've never heard of him. Well, most people haven't, but I believe that you will. 
And he says, where is his temple? He said he, he doesn't have a temple. He's invisible? Yes, he's invisible. And the guy is just dumbstruck that this invisible God is being followed on the promise of land that would be delivered generations later. He says, you've never seen him? He said, we've never seen him. Then Jacob gives the great Pentecostal answer. He says, well, I've seen him once and he broke my hip. Now, if you know the story of Jacob, you know what's going on, but it does a beautiful job in about three minutes of creating the dilemma that our natural mind has with the God who reveals himself as he has revealed himself. We don't always know his will. We can know in general ways, or he may tell us very specifically, but we don't always know his will. We don't always understand his agenda. Um, one fellow that I was talking to, inviting him to church, said to me one time, he said, I would believe the Bible if it were not for one verse. And I said, what verse is that? I thought he was going to ask me where Cain got his wife or I, I just didn't know. And this is what he said. He said, there's a passage in the Psalms, uh, and, and it's in Psalm 119, it, that says God is good and everything he does is good. He says, that's a bald-faced lie. Everything God does is not good. And we talked about it. I said, we've got to understand everything that happens is not God's action. And the, the shape of this world, the, the you know, human trafficking, slavery, racial injustice, bigotry, theft, all of these things, violence, all of these are the product of man's choice, not God's decree. I never could really convince him of that, but he reminded me of a lot of Christians. We see God move and we see the way he handles things. And our conclusion is he's got a bad agenda. God is not good and everything he does is not good. No, from the perspective of heaven and giving it enough time, God is good and everything that he does is good. The other issue is his revelation. What has he shown me? How much or how little do I know? It, it all comes back to we are, you know, the Bible doesn't say, we love to quote Isaiah where it says his ways are higher than our ways. And we, and we read that as though it's saying we're here and God's here. He's, just, he's a little higher than us. No, he says, my ways are not your ways. My actions are not understood by you. It's not that God's a little smarter. It's that God is other other. He's not a glorified man. Um, so we have this struggle of the revelation. How much do we know? How much do we not know? And then number four, God's methods leave me dumbfounded sometimes. Um, I, I don't understand why he does this. I, I joke about how I often tell God, I try to help him saying it'd be easier if you do this or that, but I, I don't do that. I, I know better than that. His methods. So it's not only a matter of why does he do what he do, but why does he do it the way he does it? My dad, um, the only time he ever played baseball with me, played pitch with me. Um, and it's not because he was not a good dad. It's just, my dad was six days a week work and he just didn't have time for playing. But one day he came out and wanted to pitch a little bit. And he, 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 I, I didn't understand until later. My dad had never owned a baseball or a bat in his life. 
uh, he was raised in a very rural place and um, the only ball and bat they would have had was a tree limb that was cut and something round that worked as a ball. So I, I forgave him that he threw like a girl, you know, a little bit. I know that's politically incorrect, but you could say that back in the 60s. He threw like a girl. And if there's anybody here from the South Carolina women's softball team, please, please have mercy on me. And uh, then when my dad got up to bat, he took the oddest batting position I had ever seen in my life. And I want to tell you the truth. I, I felt my, my dominant feeling was I felt sorry for my dad. I hurt for him because here's a, here's a grown man that, you know, in his 40s that didn't know how to stand at the plate and hold a bat. Now, I, I felt hurt for him. And to tell you the truth, I, I hate to say this, but my dad's in heaven. He'll understand it now. I was ashamed of my dad. I kept watching to be sure none of my friends were coming by to see this person trying to play baseball. And, I, and it was an alien life form. But when I would pitch to my dad, I found out that after he got his rhythm, he was knocking the ball all over the place. It, I, 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 and I can honestly say this, other than somebody that was a, you know, official baseball player, I'd never seen anybody hit with the kind of power my dad had. And I was wondering, how does he do that? Now, I felt sorry for him and I was ashamed of him. Not, not like ashamed of my dad, but... Uh, ashamed of his batting stance. But you know what I found out as I got a little bit older? I found out going back in books and looking that the only baseball pictures my dad had ever seen growing up were from the 19 aughts and the 19 teens. The batting stance was different then. And I looked at that and I remember looking at a picture of, of Ty Cobb and Hannes Wagner and some of the players from back then. And I began to realize that my dad had a perfect stance for 1910. Uh, it, it was perfect. I thought he didn't know what he was doing, but what he was doing, it was absolutely classic. And then from that moment forth, uh, I, I, I was so proud of my dad. I felt like he bridged two eras for me. Now, you say, where are you going with this, Pastor? I want you to know that it's like that with God. His methods often embarrass us or anger us. But if we can just get a perspective, we see that he is classic. And he is perfect in everything that he does. Now, there's a couple other things you got to deal with. God's always working through a maturing process. He told Abraham, your children are going to be in bondage 400 years. And I would have said, 400 years? Hope will be lost in 400 years. But you know what God said to Abraham? He said, you need to understand this. The land that I'm giving them belongs to a group of people, several nations. One of them was the Amorites. And this is what God said. The cup of iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. See, God didn't just pick on those nations and drive them out because he wanted Israel in the land. God was working to redeem all of those ites you read about in the New Testament. 
And all of them had passed the point of one return except one nation. And he said, until that nation crosses the point of no return, I can't bring your children in. Because God loves the, loved the Amorites and the Hivites and all the other ites just as much as he loved Israel. Now, he had a special plan for Israel. But God sometimes holds us at arm's length waiting for the maturing process of his bigger picture to come to pass. And sometimes, for reasons we may or may not know, God just has mercy. It's, it's his mercy process. It's, you know, we talked about this in our study of Moses on Wednesday nights. When God led Israel out of Egypt, he led them on a roundabout course, way out of the way. And even though they were coming from the west, they went into the land from the east. And we have a reason for explanation. God said if he had let them go right into the land directly, they would have gone into Philistia. Philistia were the worst toughest enemy they would face. They were the Klingons of the ancient Bible days. And he said, if I'd talk, taken you straight into the land, you would have become discouraged and gone back to Egypt. I wonder how many times I fussed at God for not giving me what he promised me when he's letting my hand get steady enough to hold it. He's letting my hands learn the dynamic of warfare and um, there's a passage that just makes us scratch our head. Therefore, will the Lord wait? Why? That he may be gracious to you. He may be gracious to you. Now, let's go on to something else here because we, we got to hurry. You're going to have to listen faster. Is there really such a thing as unanswered prayer at all? Well, <clears throat> the answer to that is yes and no. God basically answers our prayers Three ways. Now, every one of these three ways have subsets under them. But I'm talking about the three general. Generally, God sometimes says yes. That's when we shout hallelujah and start singing, I've got the devil by the tail on a downhill drag, singing tie-yay, yippee-yay. We sing that song when God says yes. Now, sometimes you've got to, people are, people are being taught in Christian churches that this never happens. But sometimes God says no. Well, when he says no, he just means not right now. No. Sometimes he means no. Paul said, I besought the Lord for this affliction from Satan three times. And that was a Hebraic way of saying it was on my list nonstop. It was the source of perpetual prayer. He said, I was praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And God finally answered. And what did he say? No. I will not remove this. There's a reason for it. You say, well, yeah, he removed it one day though. So God was saying, wait. Yeah, he, he removed it when Paul died and went to heaven. Everything gets removed then. No, sometimes God says no. But now what we call unanswered prayer, uh, yes, we love. No, we sometimes call unanswered prayer because we don't like the answer. But a no in the will of God is better than a yes in our will. So it's answered prayer. But sometimes God does say wait. Sometimes he says wait or it's not time. Or sometimes he doesn't say anything and it's silence. And we have to let the silence hold us until God gives us more light. 
We don't like that darkness. Any of you know what a Christmas cactus is? You know how that, that pretty flower? I used to go to my grandmother's house and at Christmas, well, between, between uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, she, her house was filled with Christmas cacti and um, her house was a very plain house. It was uh, nothing, you know, just four little rooms, a little shotgun house and a bathroom that had been added on. And, um, but during the holidays, her house was full of Christmas cactus and they were all blooming and her house was like Bellingrath Gardens. It was just beautiful, but it was all Christmas cactus. And um, I, I said to her one time, I said, Grandmother, I guess you must buy a new cactus every year. And she said, no, no, I've had these since you were, you were a little bitty feller. I said, these are the same ones because I would see them outside during warm weather. And then along about the 1st of November, because we'd go to Bonifay for the rodeo every October, about that time they would disappear. And then when we'd come back around Thanksgiving or Christmas, they're, they're out and by Christmas they're just beautiful. And I say, what, what do you do with them? And she told me, she said, I take all of these cactus and I shut them up in the jelly closet. And she said, I don't want them to have any light for that, for the month of November. I don't water them for the month of November. And I said, why? She said, well, you want them to bloom, don't you? And I said, yes, ma'am. So why do you put them in darkness and thirst them to death? She said, you're going to have to take that up with God. He made the Christmas cactus this way. You put it in the dark and you thirst it to death for a month. And then when you pull it out into bright light and start watering it, it blooms like it's celebrating its release from captivity. And, if, and I found out later that, yeah, Christmas cactus, just before it blooms, it needs about 14 hours of darkness. My grandmother wanted to be sure they got 14 hours of darkness, so she shut them away for a month. <laughs> Loved ones, I, I, I know I'm probably telling too many stories today, but I have found in my life that whenever God shuts me in the jelly closet, it's not because he's punishing me. It's not because he's mad at me. It's because he's working something in my life that matches the DNA of how he made me. And when he brings me out into the light, I am going to blossom and shine like never before. I know, I know there are probably hundreds of people listening today. Why hasn't he given me this? Why hasn't he answered that? Why hasn't he resolved this issue? I don't know a time in my pastoral ministry where more people have more unresolved issues than right now in their life. I tell you what I believe with all of my heart. I'll tell you why I believe you're in the jelly closet. It's because God is about to do something in regard to the harvest and you are going to blossom and shine and you are going to have a showing like you've never had in your life. I really believe that. Now, what are some of the reasons? Okay, let's get right down to it. We got just a, just a very few minutes. What are some of the reasons our prayers don't seem to, to be answered? Um, 
first of all, it might be the law of internal contradiction. You say, what do you mean? You've prayed a prayer and if God answers the prayer you're praying today, he can't answer the prayer he, that you prayed two years ago. Internal contradiction. Let me, let, me, let me give you an example. Lord, make me more like Jesus. Oh, he loves that prayer. And as a result, every prayer you pray, like, get me out of this mess. Kill him. And the list goes on and on. God says, oh, I'm so sorry you're hurting. But you prayed a prayer that takes precedent over all of these others. And there's a law of internal contradiction. We don't like it. But it's there. There's the law of external contradiction. Go with me back in time to 1975. A beautiful summer afternoon in Holmes County, Florida. I am performing, I think, the the second wedding I've ever performed in all of my ministry. I'm standing in the church um, with the bride and um, I, I want to pray with her and she's crying and she puts her hand on my arm and says, says, Steve, please pray, please pray. I said, sure. She said, you see those clouds, you hear that thunder? She said, our reception is outside. Pray that it will not rain the rest of the afternoon. And I, God's man of faith and power, I took her by the hand. I rebuked the clouds. I rebuked the wind. I rebuked the rain. And I said, everything's going to be okay. And I went outside to see if the groom had run off and he hadn't, he was still there. But one of his groomsmen um, was, was weeping and he was looking up at the clouds and he came over and put that big farmer's arm around me. He could have crushed me. He said, Preacher boy, that's how old he was and how little he thought of me. Preacher boy, he said, I need you to touch God for me. And I thought, he doesn't want it to rain either. I want to tell him I've already got this one. He said, if I don't get rain today, I'm going to lose my whole crop. I'm going to lose everything. He said, I want you to pray in Jesus' name that it rains today. And I remember looking at him and says, is your farm nearabouts here anywhere? Or is it, you know, where's your farm? He said, oh, you can see it from here. And I thought. <laughs> so I prayed and loosed the clouds and ordered it to rain. And I was the hero to both of them. You say, what happened? I honestly don't remember. I was in a hurry to get out of there because I didn't want to be blamed by anybody. <laughs> But you understand what I'm saying. If, if, if it was me praying now, I'd say, Lord, let the rain hold off till after the reception, then send a frog strangler to the farmer's field. But I realize that there are some, there are sometimes we pray and we're contradicting each other. And it doesn't mean somebody's right and wrong necessarily or, or evil or good. It's just in the vicissitudes of life, there are different needs for different people. Yogi Berra said that, uh, who was a very devout Christian and, and um, served God in the Catholic Church. He, he said, um, Yogi Bear was the one that whenever uh, uh, another batter from Catholic faith would come up and cross himself, Yogi would always look at him and say, why don't you just let God relax and enjoy the game? Just leave him out of this. 
But I know what it's like when teams meet at midcourt or midfield and they pray and they're both praying to win. They're both praying, God, you'll be glorified and honored if our team wins. I, I, I don't know what to do because there's external contradiction. Sometimes God says yes. Sometimes God says no. Let's go on. Let's hurry. There's God's respect for the law of cause and effect. The Bible has a lot to say about how the kingdom operates on the principles of sowing and reaping. If you sow, you will reap. And I know sometimes God does things without our effort. And I thank God for that. Just sheer mercy. God, sometimes God does things because of what I've done. Sometimes God does things in spite of what I've done. And, and sometimes he just shows incredible mercy and he answers prayer before we can even get him out. I was in the prayer room at Southeastern one time and I had, it was the week of final exams, but I had made up my mind. I, I, I had a habit. I was not, I, I went to the prayer room every night. I closed every day with prayer, regardless of what was the next day. It was probably 10, 30, 11 that night. And I knew I was going to have a long night of study ahead of me, but I had made a promise to God. I'm not going to let anything take me away from my time of prayer. So I'm down there praying and there's this guy in there that was praying, but he's praying different than me. And he went through his prayers and, and, um, I was praying silently. He was praying out loud. It was hard to focus. And he said, and I command the angels of God to breathe knowledge into my head as I sleep tonight. <coughs> he said, I command the angels of God who are ministers of grace to give me answers to the test because I've chosen to pray instead of study and I need my sleep. And I sat there in the dark kind of thinking, one of us is way off. You say, well, did it work for him? I don't know. He dropped out. He never finished school. But I, I, I realized that even after I prayed, I needed to study. So there's the law of cause and effect. Number four, answers can be delayed by a hindering spiritual force. You know what Daniel was told by an angel? Daniel had prayed his whole being over a matter one week, two weeks, three weeks came by. And on the 21st day, the angel of the Lord came with an answer. And the angel told him, you were heard the moment you prayed. But I have been in spiritual warfare with a demonic power, a principality and power that did not want me to get the answer to you. So sometimes it's not that God doesn't hear us, but there's a hindering spiritual force. Now, I got to tell you, God's always greater than the hindering spiritual forces, but sometimes he allows them some latitude. Now, our request, number five, letter E on your outline, sometimes our request might be outside of his will or purpose. Now, guys, I want to tell you, don't worry about trying to attain perfection in your life or in your prayers. One of the most beautiful stories of answered prayer in the New Testament, do you believe? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus didn't give him a lecture. He didn't tell him to go enroll in Pastor Justin's school of faith. He just realized, this man realized there's a conflict. I believe, but I'm struggling. And Jesus did what he needed him to do. But, but sometimes it may be really outside of his will and he won't do it for our benefit. Um, perhaps we have stepped out of his will. 
is uh, one example um, and, or, or one category. And some examples here, uh, I, I didn't print out the verses for you, but unconfessed sin. If we regard iniquity in our heart, the psalmist said, Psalm 66, 18, King James says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, um, I think it was NIV says, if I have cherished iniquity in my heart. In other words, um, it, it's, it's not that we can't pray if there's something in our heart that ought not be there. We have to pray to get that out of our heart. But to cherish something, to regard something, to give it a place where, Lord, you can have all of me except this, that will hinder prayer. Um, unconfessed sin. Isaiah 59 said, surely the arm of the Lord's not too short to save or his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. <laughs> it's never a problem with God's ability, but our iniquities can separate us from God. Um, we could also have poor family relationships. God has designed husband and wife, <coughs> excuse me, to live together, uh, to pray together, and it creates a stability in the home. And this is what Peter said. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect because they are your partner. They are fellow heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Why should you do this, Peter said? So that nothing will hinder your prayers. I tell you, if we don't live in unity at home, it can hinder our prayer. It might not send us to hell, but it can hinder our prayers. Um, <coughs> a lack of forgiveness. And boy, we've talked about this so much. But in Matthew 5, Jesus said, if you're, if, you're, if you're praying and you're waiting to offer your sacrifice and you realize that you've done wrong to someone or someone's done wrong to you, uh, Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, he said, whatever the case, he says, get that taken care of. He put it in these terms. He says, ask somebody to hold your sacrifice. It's like, James, hold my goat. I'll be right back. Go make it right uh, because lack of forgiveness can, can cause all kinds of problems in our prayers. Lack of necessary faith. Now, I, I want to say this. We Pentecostals have made a whole subculture of this, that if you just get your faith right, God's got to do anything that you have faith for. And I think that's very unfortunate. I've talked about that. We don't have time to deal with it today. There are times when God responds to our faith. But I want to tell you, that's not that's, that's not always the case. Sometimes God responds to faith. Sometimes re God responds when there is a lack of faith. Sometimes faith doesn't even enter into the picture. God sees the need of his child. But sometimes we need to ask in faith. James 4.3 says that we can ask with wrong motives. In other words, we can, we can think we're doing the right thing, but it's because of something selfish, um, you know, one person might say, Lord, bless my business so I can fund missions. While another person says, Lord, bless my business so I can have a bigger car or uh, better vacations. Now, there's nothing wrong with a bigger car. There's nothing wrong with, with better vacations as long as they're in the place they belong and not the driving force. Um, sometimes, according to Luke 3 and Matthew 21, we can have unanswered prayer because we're hypocrites. Whether it's in our giving or our praying, Jesus said, people pray to be heard, people pray to be seen. 
And he said, that's hypocrisy. Don't think that God's going to answer your prayers. He says, God will answer publicly the prayers of those who pray privately. And sometimes when we're just not in partnership with Christ. You know, Jesus said, from this point on, you're going to ask in my name. And we have a tradition. We end our prayers usually in the name of Jesus. And um, there's nothing wrong with that, but it might interest you to know there's not an example in anywhere in scripture where a prayer ends in the name of Jesus. Um, it's sort of like the same thing. Somebody asked me one time, uh, pastor, <clears throat> you baptized in the name of the father and the son, and the Holy spirit. But Peter said, we need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, and I had to explain to that person whether we are praying in the name of Jesus or baptizing in the name of Jesus, that's not a formula. It is a relationship of authority. When I pray in Jesus' name, it means I'm praying because of the authority of Christ. When I baptize in Jesus' name, I'm not baptizing in the name of Jesus. I baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But I am baptizing on the authority of Christ. So to pray in Jesus' name, it's not a lucky rabbit's foot that you put on the end of the prayer. It is saying, because I am in alignment with Christ, I ask the Father for these things. Um, now, there's another reason. Okay, Maybe we stepped out of his will. Number two on your outline, perhaps he has other intentions or a better plan. You can tell a Christian's maturity a lot of ways, but one of the ways is what they do with unanswered prayer or the possibility of unanswered prayer. The three Hebrew children, we've talked about them. When they were being threatened with being thrown into the fire by Nebuchadnezzar, this is what they said. We know that our God has power to deliver us. We are certain of that. Number one. Number two, and we believe that he will. Great. But if not, I get blasted for this so much, but I think faith is not complete unless there's a but if not. You say, well, that's not faith. No, it's not faith. It's mega faith. It's faith, hope, and love, as Paul described to the Corinthians. Faith says, I know God can. Uh, hope says, and I believe he will. But love says, even if he doesn't. Job put it this way, though he slay me, I will trust him. And loved ones, a lot of you have spent your life trying to get more faith, more faith, more faith, more faith, more faith, more faith, more faith. And I think you need to back off and try to get more love, more love, more love. I trust him even if Amen. not. Yes. Well, I need, to, I need to cut the broadcast right there. Um, Paul's thorn, Paul's thorn. When, when God explained to Paul why he would not take that messenger of Satan away, Paul rejoiced. He celebrated. He said, then don't take it away. Please don't take it away because what it's doing for me is far greater than the taking away of the thorn could produce. And even in Romans 1, Paul talked about, I've tried to come to you, but there's a process that needs perfection. God's working. Now, what are the life lessons? We got to wrap it up. I think I got about 90 seconds to wrap it up. Um, not in a row. 
but I've got about 90 seconds. Four things, loved ones, that we all need to remember during this, this pandemic, during this time of waiting and being shut down and being told to wear masks and being told where we can go and where we can't go and how close we can sit and how close we can't sit. Four things to remember. Number one, um, we may never know this side of eternity the reason for unanswered prayer. I'm, I'm just here to tell you, you may go to your grave not knowing the reason why some things happened or some things didn't happen. Well, what do I do with that, Pastor? You go to your grave knowing that on the other side. You know, I used to say, boy, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus about this. I'm going to ask Jesus about that. I'm going to ask Jesus about the other. I tell you what I believe. I believe the first moment I breathe heaven's atmosphere, I believe the first moment I see him, it won't be a question mark. It'll be an exclamation point. And it could be that my first word in heaven will be, oh, <laughs> okay, okay. Number two, we must not allow ourselves to default to an expectation of unanswered prayer. You say, well, pastor, it just seems that, it just seems that I've just had one answered prayer after another. I know, but remember those days when you had one answered prayer after another? you've got to understand this thing balances out and God is always in control and God always knows. Number three, never underestimate the power of prayer, even those prayers which seem to go unanswered. Power has such amazing, amazing power. I, I don't, I, I probably should have checked with the family to have permission to do this, but I was, I was thinking about um, Big Mike's funeral from a while back and I, I said, Big Mike is like bamboo. I said, if you've ever planted bamboo, you know you don't control bamboo. You can't kill bamboo. It shows up in the neighbor's yard. It shows up everywhere. And I said, that's the kind of guy Big Mike was. I should say is, but do you, do you know folks that your prayers are the same way? Uh, my bamboo, the, the lady that I bought it from said, you don't want this. It's going to grow everywhere. And I said, I, I like bamboo. She said, you don't want it. And you know what I found out after a while? I didn't want it. <laughs> because it took over my yard. I spent two winters trying to kill it. And I, I'm so glad I didn't get caught. Like two or three nights when it got dark and I knew the neighbors were in bed, I climbed over the fence and went to where my bamboo was springing up in their yard and killed it because I thought they would kill me if my bamboo took over their yard. No, I, when I saw about Mike, I meant it's a good kind of spreading, but your prayer is more resilient than bamboo. It shows up when you think it's dead. It shows up when you think it's forgotten. George Mueller, I encourage you to read the story of his intercession. George Mueller um, needed a piece of property for his orphans. And George Mueller, an amazing life of prayer. A man, a businessman in London who was not a believer, had a piece of property that was valued at 50,000 pounds. And it would, the market was so hot, he said, ask 100,000 to his uh, agent. 
Ask 100,000, but take no less than 50,000. Absolutely no less than 50. Uh, and I prefer closer to 100. And um, he came in one day to the, to the office and said, any offers today? He said, no, no offers. Well, there was one, but it's so ridiculous that I'm not even going to mention it to you. He said, why was it ridiculous? He said, for this $100,000 piece of property, somebody offered 2,000 uh, pounds, pounds I'm in. And he said, that's ridiculous. That's insulting. That's stupid. And the agent said, yeah, that's what I thought. He said, who would offer 2,000 pounds for a 100,000 pound piece of property? He looked at the paper. He said, it's a man who runs orphanages. His name is George Mueller. And the man slammed his hand down on the paper and said, sell it. Sell it now, right now. And he said, sir, it's after hours. The man, no doubt, is getting ready for bed. He said, go to his residence and pay and, and accept the 2,000 pounds now. He said, that man prays. I've seen that man pray. If we don't get 2,000 pounds out of him now, he'll get it for nothing. Live in an expectation, finally, a partnership with God that includes answered prayer. There's a story Jesus told about a wicked judge. And Jesus said there's a woman that needs a remedy in court and the judge doesn't care about her. The judge doesn't want to take up her case. The judge is saying, it's too little, it's too insignificant, leave me alone. And Jesus says, the woman just keeps knocking. The woman just keeps knocking. And the judge says, I don't fear God. I don't respect man. I don't care anything about this woman, but she's bothering me. So I will grant her request. And most churches teach this about that parable. They teach that the parable is saying, just keep bothering God. Just keep bothering God. And sooner or later, you'll get from him what you need. Just keep bothering him. But this was a parable, not of comparison, but a parable of contrast. You know what God was saying? And it's so beautiful. God was saying this was a wicked judge with absolutely no compassion for this woman. And she kept knocking and he finally said, all right, all right, all right, I'll do it. He wasn't saying that our heavenly father is like that. He said, if this man being evil will respond this way, how much more so will your heavenly father give you what you need? Loved ones, a lot of us have spent our lives trying to become obnoxious prayers. God, I'm not going to let you rest. I don't know if you ever sleep, but I'm, you'll never sleep till I get what I need. And we finally think we conquered God and we manhandled God and we got him. To, no, God is saying, look, persistence works with the worst of situations. How much more does persistence work when you have an advocate on your side? Loved ones, I don't know what you're facing. I know what some of you are facing. Jobs, sicknesses, financial difficulty. The list goes on and on and on. I've never seen my prayer pages as full ever in the 26 years I've been here than they are right now. There's so much going on. But I will tell you this, we're not bombarding heaven trying to twist God's arm. We're not trying to get him to get busy for us somehow. I tell you what we're doing. 
We're coming to a God who says it's my pleasure to give the kingdom to my children. We're coming to a God who says he's kindly affection toward us like a mother. He watches over us like a father. You say, well, then why isn't he answering my prayer? Because he's working something so beautiful and powerful in you that if he were to come to you tonight, sit down on your bed and tell you what he's doing, we couldn't believe it. Then what do I do? Have patience. You say, is that the best you got? Yeah. That's the best I got. Be patient. Be patient. God uses phrases like this. We will reap in due season if we don't give up. When describing the great plan of salvation, he says, in the fullness of time, when it was perfect timing, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. No, he's never late. He scares the snot out of me sometimes. He really does. He scares me sometimes, but he's never been late. He's never been late. He's never come without what was needed. And loved ones, I want to tell you, I, I, I know we're not out of this yet. I know we're not out of this yet. But you and I have a choice to make. We can cave in to the pressure of hell or we can press into the presence of Jesus. You say, well, I expect a preacher to say that. Well, I think it's right. And I think he's going to help us because he bats a thousand. Would you stand with me, please? Those of you at home, we're praying for you too. Father, we're not trying to get comfortable with unanswered prayer. But what we're trying to do is to realize that you said, keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. So when we have unanswered prayer, we just keep knocking. We keep pressing. I'm asking you to bring that job that has been held from us, bring it to the table. I'm asking for that financial resource that has been withheld, bring it to us, Lord. I pray for those that have struggled with this virus or other conditions. I pray for those that are, feel like they're going crazy because some, some of our folks haven't been out of their house since March. Come to them, Lord, with relief, with deliverance. Father, we're ready for you to show yourself mighty. We're ready for you to show yourself mighty. There are those that are struggling emotionally, psychologically. Lord, we all have different ways that this has affected us. And I'm praying in the name of Jesus. I'm not just asking you to pat us on the back. I'm asking you, Lord, to come through. Now that we begin to understand something of your nose and your weights, now I pray for an outpouring of yeses. I pray for yes and amen. Lord, as we say, 
as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. We remember the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning and great is your faithfulness. Lord, at the risk of sounding a little crazy, I rebuke the spirit of unbelief. I rebuke the voice of doubt and self-deprecation and self-hatred that our responses have welcomed into our mindset and our thinking processes. I rebuke those voices in the name of Jesus. No weapon that is formed against us shall prosper. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Father, we have accustomed ourselves because of our disappointment. We have accustomed ourselves to the lies that come from hell. And we rebuke those things now in the name of Jesus. We will not listen. We will not agree. We will not meditate on those things. We claim Romans 12 that says we are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're not talking about some positive confession or some positive attitude, but we are talking about the transformation of our minds that we say we will believe the report of the Lord. Paul said to the Corinthians, we bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And loved ones, I want to tell you this, never believe the devil even if he's telling the truth. (coughs) Set us free by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that every home, Lord, right now, begin to let the fire of the Lord's presence begin to dip down in homes. Lord, I pray that the presence of the Lord would fill homes and drive out darkness, drive out the dark voices of depression and despondency. Lord, let the fire of the Holy Ghost settle in these homes and drive out everything that's unlike you. Let it come in the church. Lord, we are pursuing your presence and your glory. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you for joining us in worship today. I hope you will be with us for our online service next week to encounter His presence. If you would like to know more about the ministry of Christian Life Church, please visit our website at clcolumbia.com or call us at 803-798-4488. The Lord bless you and keep you and have a great week.